0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are tuning into this episode of Focus on Facts. I'm Eric Sussman, and glad to reconnect with you once again to talk about market bubbles, financial innovation, and SPACs. No, not spanks, although I hear those really do wonders for the shapeliness of ones behind. Now, as much as I would love to dedicate an entire podcast episode to spanks. Today, I would like to talk about something far less sexy and far more mundane, special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, by which they are more commonly referred, and which are all the rage on Wall Street right now, responsible for nearly three quarters of all the capital raised via initial public offerings so far this year. In fact, so far in 2021, through the third week of March, over 260 of these SPACs have gone public, raising over $84 billion from investors. And this is on top of the 300 SPACs that were listed in 2020, when over $80 billion was raised. Oh, and did I mention that there are another 100 or so SPACs in the initial public offering queue? In fact, I just read in yesterday's Wall Street Journal that WeWork, yes beleaguered WeWork, the shared office space company is, wait for it, set to go public via a SPAC merger. So in this episode of Focus on Facts, I want to delve into these special purpose acquisition or blank check companies, as they are also known, to explain what they are, how they work, what investors should understand about them, and why their proliferation makes me very nervous and uneasy about the equity markets today. And that's perhaps the most critical issue for us, not so much to get into the weeds and technicalities of these special purpose acquisition companies, but to understand what they might tell us about the broader market cycle and what may lay ahead for investors. And not that I want to give away the punchline uh, to this particular episode so soon, but I fear that retail investors piling into these investments are going to get spanked or spac or something like that. So while we are going to discuss a lot about SPACs during this episode, I want to make absolutely certain that we don't lose the market forest and the SPAC trees, so to speak. History and a macro perspective are crucial because... There is nothing new about SPACs, and they have actually been around since the early 1990s when they were created. I have often said that history is merely different people doing the same crap over and over and over again, and with this perspective in mind, I believe we should all be a tad nervous when Wall Street or others are peddling investments via acronym SPACs, CMBSs, collateralized mortgage-backed securities. NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, Cocos, Copas, No-No's, Perks, Tigers, Lions, and Bears, oh my. I am not sure that coms qualify as an acronym, but I will throw them into the mix. I am talking about financial alphabet soup. And while that one-liner plays well in MBA elective courses, I think there is a lot of truth to it. Perhaps more telling is when your Uber or Lyft driver or that financially inexperienced family member starts asking you about a particular investment they have heard about. Intuition should tell you that we may be nearing a market peak. There's probably some sort of Venn diagram of people interested in SPACs, Bitcoin, and GameStop. Anyhow, to frame this particular episode, I would like to start with a story. So grab your swimsuits or if you prefer to go in your birthday suit. (laughs) That's perfectly fine. And let's take another dip into my now infamous hot tub time machine back to the spring of 1999 when I was teaching an elective MBA course in corporate financial reporting, where I get to talk about the exciting world of financial statements and the profoundly captivating topics of revenues and earnings per share, free cash flows, You know, the nuts and bolts of the subject and the foundational elements used to value companies. Well, during one particular session, I mentioned that stock prices at the time had become disconnected from their underlying fundamentals and that firms with no or minimal current or foreseeable revenues, profits, or cash flows should not be trading or going public at the levels that they were because they had the words dot com after their names you know, just the kind of thing that a Bean County accounting or finance professor might just say. And then a hand shot up and a student in the class sitting in the third or fourth row to my right. I still remember it like it was yesterday, although it really bums me out that it was a long ways away from yesterday. Professor Sussman, this is all interesting and makes sense, but this is a different era and things have changed. You really need to consider alternative metrics, things like eyeballs per page or the amount of time that a visitor is spending on a website in this new era of the internet to really understand these valuations we're seeing. It really remains one of the single most memorable moments in my teaching career. It's probably number two behind the time when the back of my Joseph A. Bank slacks completely split open when I bent down to pick up a whiteboard marker. Yeah, that that actually happened, and the students definitely got their tuition's worth on that particular day. Anyhow, after the students comment, I paused and reflected for a minute and replied that we should make a wager, that by the time I saw him at the five-year reunion, we would be able to see who was correct, He, with his sincere belief that a new era of investing was upon us and that these new metrics certain Wall Street analysts and others were throwing around would replace those old, boring, yawner metrics like free cash flows or earnings per share. You know, how much actual money or profits firms are earning. Well, fast forward a few years after the dot-com stocks had blown up and the NASDAQ had declined 80% percent, yes, eight zero percent in a span of 18 months from its peak in the spring of 2000, when who do I run into in the hallowed halls of UCLA Anderson but this former student? And before I can even get a word in edgewise, he says, I know, I know, Professor Sussman, you were right. The words that both teachers and spouses love to hear. Well, with this in mind, and the view that so many have that this time is somehow different, let's fast forward to today and start with some high-level data points, you know, those facts that I am very fond of. One, the equity markets have increased nearly 80% from their March 2020 lows in the face of COVID, rising unemployment, and all of the economic uncertainty that exists. Two, in 2020... We experienced the quickest and deepest bear market decline in history, followed by some $20 trillion in global stimulus, the highest stock market volatility recorded on record, as measured by the VIX or VIX, negative oil prices, and then the fastest recovery from a bear market we've ever witnessed. Three, on New Year's Day of 2020, so about 15 months ago, if you had bought shares, In every company that had lost money, that reported net losses in 2019, and that had market capitalizations of over a billion dollars, which captures about 260 companies plus or minus, you would have made over 65% last year. And in fact, almost one in five of those companies was up more than 100% during the year and include names like Tesla. Tesla. Overstock.com, and Peloton. For the more than $160 billion in equity raised by those 560 special purpose acquisition companies that have gone public in just the last two years. And finally, the last data point, 40% or more of SPAC trading is being done by retail investors, according to B of A Securities. All right, with these five facts in mind, let's start at the top. What is a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company? Drumroll, please. Well, by its very definition, a SPAC is a company, of course, with the special, unique purpose of acquiring another already existing company. Once a SPAC is formed, it is listed and becomes publicly traded. And yet they own no operating assets at all. They are just an organizational shell. They raise cash from investors and then have a set period of time, generally two years, in which to find another company, one that is privately owned or held, to acquire and merge with. And then in so doing, that private company becomes public, having merged with the already publicly traded SPAC. Voila. Perhaps we should think of SPACs and these mergers like Corporate Tinder or Bumble. Instead of Coffee Meets Bagel, it's SPAC meet Private Company or like that final rose on The Bachelor or Bachelorette, though hopefully the post-merger SPAC will have greater success than relationships following final rose ceremonies, but I digress. Okay, a few other details are really crucial to understand, but before I go further, let's Step back for a moment and briefly discuss the typical or traditional process by which a private company, even say Clear Capital My Company, might go public. First, a company retains an underwriter, an investment bank, which, along with a cadre of corporate transactional attorneys and accountants, files a voluminous document with the Securities and Exchange Commission, known as an S1 which is generally a war and peace-sized document and includes all sorts of data information, historical and audited financial statements, a detailed discussion of the company's business, operations, competition, risks, etc. The typical information one might think would be crucial in helping an investor decide whether to invest in a company or not. Obviously, what's in any particular S-1 filing depends on the company and what securities are being offered, but You can imagine there's a lot in there. The company filing the S-1 then hits the road to sell or market their wares. In this case, let's assume shares of stock in advance of their trading debuts. Oh, and one other thing that's important to keep in mind, for a decent period of time, actually 40 days, both before and after these companies go public, they have to be very careful as to any statements they make so as to not unduly influence the public offering. This is known as the quiet period. With SPACs, because they are empty shells when they list their shares, there is not much to say. There's no financial statements to provide, no real business to describe, since they don't own anything. So SPACs, these shells go public, raise money, place the money in an interest-bearing trust account, and then go shopping, perhaps focusing on a particular acquisition target or targets within one or more industries with whom they ultimately hope or plan to merge. It's why they're sometimes referred to as blank check companies. The next question you might be asking is, okay, well, what's in it for bankers and sponsors, the folks behind these SPACs? Well, I am sure you already know the answer, so I really and sincerely hope you are sitting down and buckled up, but money, of course. Bankers make fees, duh, so that part is easy to understand. And sponsors, the individuals or firms behind these stacks, well, they are richly rewarded in the game. First off, while you and I, normal and typical retail investors, pay full price for any shares of a SPAC we might buy into, sponsors, A, get to purchase both shares and warrants, basically rights to buy additional shares, at a deep discount, usually 20%, and a lot of them. And B, they obtain the right, and this is really important, they get the right to withdraw their investment, to be repaid for the amount that they spent on buying the shares and warrants, before the SPAC closes on any acquisition, which essentially insulates them from losses. It's that old tale. Heads we win, tails we don't lose. How can you beat that? If a merger is announced and the SPAC stock price goes up, sponsors make money and make out like bandits. If a deal is announced and the market doesn't like it, the stock price drops, Sponsors exercise their right to have the SPAC repurchase their shares at the cost. It's just like Mel Brooks said it in History of the World Part One it's good to be the king. And so perhaps it's not exactly shocking how many people are coming out of the proverbial woodwork to sponsor these investment vehicles. They include folks like former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, and President Trump's former economic advisor, Gary Cohen. Perhaps the most well-known sponsor, a name now almost synonymous with the space, yet virtually unknown to the public, is a gentleman named Hamat Polyhapatia, who is a SPAC celebrity of sorts, promoting SPACs via Twitter. His firm, Social Capital, the name seems very apt in today's investing environment, has raised billions in at least five SPACs and has filed documents For seven more. But wait, let's not forget about Jay-Z, Alex Rodriguez, Colin Kaepernick, and Shaquille O'Neal, who are also sponsoring SPACs. That's right, Jay-Z and Shaq. At this point, I am waiting for Harry Potter and Dobby to sponsor one. And my gosh, with all these celebrity sponsors, what could possibly go wrong? All right, to summarize SPACs, these shell companies raise money from investors and with their buckets of cash they go shopping. But instead of looking for bulk toilet paper at Costco, please tell me people are no longer hoarding that stuff, these shell companies go on the hunt for private companies to buy and again typically have two years to do so. Now, some of you will will ask the obvious question well, what happens if this SPAC and its war chest can't find anything to buy? Or one bachelor or bachelorette after another refuses the final rose. A very tragic outcome indeed. Well, under the typical terms of the SPAC, they must repurchase investor shares along with interest. And I think that's one of the key pitches that are being made to retail investors, that if the SPAC is unsuccessful in its pursuit of an acquisition target, investors get their money back in interest. Oh, and perhaps the pitch that this entire structure allows retail investors to somehow get into the private equity game, something only Wall Street jet-setters formerly had access to. But this is really a misdirection in, in as much as investors still retain tremendous downside, especially when compared to bankers and sponsors who've essentially rigged the game so that they can't lose. So why are SPACs so darn hot these days, not just Baskin-Robbins flavor of the month, but of the last year plus? After all, SPACs have been around for decades, when they were usually listed on the pin sheets where penny stocks are usually found. Well, it's like they say, timing is everything, in love, war, and finance. The reality is that it's really a confluence of factors. One, the pandemic, which really put the kibosh on traditional road shows, at least for the time being, since travel became a no no and the typical initial public offering process got sidetracked. Two, really low interest rates. Three, tremendous liquidity. And for social media, which has really allowed sponsors and promoters to sell their wares to new groups of investors who just happen to be in home in quarantine reading Reddit and trading on platforms like Robinhood. And this last point is really important. Remember, I mentioned earlier this quiet period, the 40 days both before and subsequent to an IPO when a company is supposed to keep its lips sealed and its mouth shut so as to not unduly influence the offering. Well, with SPACs, this is not really an issue because the SPACs initially own nothing and have no operations. So, promoters like Mr. Pallyhaptia can use his significant social media and Twitter presence to talk up his SPACs, which he has essentially done non-stop, to the point at which he sounds sometimes like he's selling magical potions at the county fair. He has actually claimed that SPACs can reduce wealth inequality and that investors actually need his offerings, both patently absurd propositions. Even the Securities and Exchange Commission, who more often than not is excessively reactive, recently issued several statements and warnings about SPACs. This past week, for example, according to a story I read on CNBC, the SEC is opening up an inquiry into Wall Street's blank check IPO frenzy, and they are seeking more information about SPAC deal fees, volumes, and other details, but it remains to be seen what this means exactly. The SEC has now issued a few warnings about SPACs, which can essentially be summarized as Harry Potter should not go back to Hogwarts. Here are a few quotes from the SEC, some of which would seem to be self-evident. Quote, even if a celebrity is involved in a SPAC, investing in one may not be a good idea for you. Well, that's a shocker, isn't it? Are you trying to tell me that just because Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback, tells me that I should buy state farm insurance, maybe I shouldn't? And here's another doozy, a direct quote from the SEC. SPAC transactions differ from traditional IPOs and have distinct risks associated with them. For example, sponsors, which include celebrities, ex-politicians, and other backers, may have conflicts of interest, so their economic interest in the SPAC may differ from shareholders'. I obviously agree wholeheartedly with what the SEC is saying here, but does anyone really think that the average retail investor is reading SEC press releases or gives a hoot? And another question many of you might be asking, how have SPACs actually performed in the past? Well, not surprisingly, their track record is decidedly mixed. Over the past four years, 60% of SPACs that acquired businesses have lagged the performance of the S&P 500, according to Bain & Company. And honestly, I can't fathom a situation where SPACs as a group do well, at least over the medium to longer term. There is simply way too much money chasing way too few opportunities. We now have hundreds and hundreds of SPACs, as well as traditional firms looking for acquisitions, including private equity shops and operating companies themselves all chasing traditional targets in everything from technology to healthcare to consumer discretionary products. And I doubt it will shock you to learn that many SPACs are seeking targets in far more sexy, yet far more speculative areas like cannabis, gaming, and electric vehicles. I can almost envision a SPAC merging with a cryptocurrency company. Oh, well, there it is, The Goldman Sachs SPAC, GS Acquisition Holdings 2, which raised more than $700 million in a recent offering and is now on the prowl for cryptocurrency-related companies. All right. At this point, I would like to discuss a few specific case examples to illustrate how SPACs work and their very worrisome pitfalls. The first case case that I'd like to present is Clover Health Investments, a company I gather most of us have never heard of. It's a company that provides Medicare Advantage health plans to some 57,000 members. They were founded about seven years ago and have yet to record an annual profit, losing over $90 million last year in 2020. The company started the process of going public last summer And instead of going the traditional IPO route, it decided to merge with one of Mr. Pallyhaptia's entities in a $3.7 billion merger. This entity, the public SPAC Hida Sophia Holdings, a name I likely just butchered, had already raised some $1.2 billion from investors. And how has Clover, stock symbol C L O V, done? Well, not well. (laughs) At last check, it was trading for $7.68 a share, down 50% from its $15.30 initial offering price back in early January. So what the heck happened? Well, in early February, not long after the merger between Clover and Hida Sophia, Hindenburg Research, a short seller and another entity with a fantastic name, issued a report accusing Clover of failing to disclose to investors that it was being investigated by the Department of Justice for its business practices, including allegedly misleading marketing practices. The biggest SPAC offering and subsequent merger to date involves electric vehicle maker Lucid Motors, a potential competitor to Tesla which is set to offer high-end luxury electric vehicles and which announced a deal valued at $11.75 billion to merge with Churchill Capital Corp. 4, a publicly traded SPAC. And although Lucid Motors has not sold a single vehicle to date and won't for several years, its value shot up to $57 billion, giving it a higher value than Ford Motor Company. And the sponsors of the Lucid deal, how did they do? Well, the sponsors got nearly 52 million shares and warrants to purchase an additional 43 million shares, all at a 20% discount. Collectively, the sponsors made something like $1.8 billion, at least on paper. God bless America. Is it any wonder that Shaq and Jay-Z want to get into this gold mine? I think it's about time for the Eric Sussman SPAC, so I hope you all stay tuned. Finally, if you will indulge me, allow me to provide one last example, which to me really epitomizes the SPAC craze. Focus on fact, friends, I would like to introduce you to Archer Aviation, which merged with Atlas Crest Investment Corp., symbol ACIC, in late February. So who is Archer Aviation, you might ask? Well, in their own words, they are developing an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft to serve as an environmentally sustainable air taxi. Whoa. Let me say that one more time. They are developing an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft to serve as an environmentally sustainable air taxi. That's right, George Jetson. Eat your heart out. An electric taxi that can take off and land vertically is apparently coming someday. Well, no earlier than 2026 by the company's own admission. But here's the amazing math. In April of last year, so again, April of 2020, less than a year ago, Archer received its initial seed funding, valuing the company at $16 million. Okay, so keep that in mind, $16 million. And the value of the firm when it announced its merger in February, $3.8 billion. You heard that right, $3.8 billion from $16 million a year ago, a mere 24,000 times increase. It's magic. If only Dumbledore and Harry Potter had access to this sort of wizardry, can you imagine, Voldemort would not have stood a chance. Oh, and today, a mere five weeks after Archer and ACIC uh, began trading, the market cap is less than $640 million, an 84% decline from the value on the date the merger was announced. So it's clearly not just the vehicle that moves vertically. And even at that price, it is still ridiculously overvalued, or at best remains absurdly speculative. Yet, somehow I have this nagging feeling that while retail investors will end up taking a bath, the institutional investors and sponsor behind Archer and ACIC will wind up A-OK. So, there are three timely yet sobering case studies on the SPAC craze, and trust me, I could name many more. Look, will some SPACs ultimately be successful? I have no doubt about that. Just like many firms not just survived the dot-com bubble burst, but ultimately thrived and became extraordinarily successful. But for every eBay or Amazon, there will be many, many eToys, JDS Uniphases, and Pets.com. So what are the takeaways from our brief discussion of special purpose acquisition companies? First and foremost, they are nothing new, just Wall Street's latest reincarnation and repackaging of an old form, and while I'm usually loath to make predictions as I well remember that the Psychic Friends Network went bankrupt, mark my words, there will likely be significant underperformance in the SPAC space as a whole and more than a few cases of fraud. History, common sense, and intuition tell us that if not at least one of the case studies I mentioned earlier. And then sometime in 2022 or 2023, we will all read about how the warning signs were all there and that we should have all seen it coming. Two, as tempting as it might be to get into the game to join that hot craps table and throw your chips into the mix, it is imperative that long-term investors avoid these hot trends What's popular? I don't care for talking about bell bottom jeans, beanie babies, snuggies, dot-com stocks, 3D printing companies, cryptocurrencies, SPACs, or non-fungible tokens. In fact, when Wall Street starts peddling securities or opportunities with catchy acronyms, take notice and be wary. Three, I have often said that significant innovation requires tremendous capital, much of which will be incinerated during the path to advancement, whether it's money invested in the transition to electric vehicles, vaccine or pharmaceutical development, or space travel. It's the price we collectively pay for innovation. And hopefully, the money that's lost was not money poorly expended. However, with SPACs, Leverage buyouts, reverse mergers, or tracking stocks, for those of you who remember such things, we are merely talking about financial machinations where nothing tangible or really innovative is being created in these instances. I am not merely cynical, but believe that Wall Street and its brethren are merely taking advantage of poorly informed or perhaps completely uninformed retail investors. Caveat emptor. Buyer beware, as they say. Now, it's just about time for me to call my investment bankers to see their fairing on the paperwork to take my new Focus on Facts public, so I'd better get cracking on that. Keep your eyes peeled, and I hope you'll support me in that endeavor. And it is with that that I will wind up this particular episode of Focus on Facts to wish each and every one of you a good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be and you are tuning on to this episode. And I very much look forward to meeting up with you once again in the not too distant future. In the meantime, please be well. And thanks again for your kind words of support and encouragement for me and this podcast.